that I would rather be on a good team in a hard place than to be on a hard team in a good place. And I think if you think about it, most of us would think the same on that. Give, give me a, a team that's unified in the midst of really tough circumstances over a, a team that can't get along in the midst of nice circumstances. Uh, when I was in college, went to a small Christian college, and they would send missions teams, short-term missions teams all over the world every summer. And one year, my friend was leading one of the teams, and he was trying to get me to come. And uh, the team was even connected with our major there at the school. Uh, and we, so I decided to go with him on this team to the country of Uganda. Now, our school had sent teams to Uganda before, and all you ever heard about those trips was like, it was really intense and everybody on the team got deathly ill, right? It wasn't really the stuff that made you want to like, yeah, great. That sounds like a fun summer thing. It's like, I hope I come back alive. And you would hear, you know, hey, while you're there, we're going to be all over the country and we'll be in some places where there'll be days without electricity or running water. So get used to things like bucket showers and pit latrines and just stuff that don't, doesn't get you excited. So that's the team I'm on. And then my other friend, he's leading the team that's going to New Zealand. And you hear him describe, you know, hey, where are you going? What are you guys doing? And it's like, are you going on a mission trip or are you going on vacation? What's going on here? Right? And then, so we go on our trips. Uh, I had an awesome time in Uganda. Our church still has a partnership with the missionary there, partly because of that time. And there were some intense things on that trip, but we were a team and we cared about each other and, and we enjoyed being with each other. So even when we were going through hard circumstances, man, we, we were enjoying being together because there was a unity on that team. And I get back and talk to my buddy hey, how was your vacation in New Zealand? Well, it wasn't so great. Why not? Well, because that team wasn't unified. There was division. There was disunity. And it was a hard experience because of that. Well, what kind of team do you want this church to be? Because here's the thing. We don't get to choose our circumstances. Whether our circumstances will be, will be nice and good or whether they will be hard and difficult, that, that's beyond our control. But what kind of team will we be? Well, that's something that God is calling us to directly in Scripture. And to see the instruction for what that should be, let's open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, or if you're already there, let's just remember what we talked about last week, because it flows right into this week. It's not a totally new subject. Last week, the exhortation uh, was, hey, you need to be representatives or citizens of the gospel. Your life needs to reflect the gospel. And even part of that was, hey, and that means there's going to be a unity, one spirit, one mind that you share. But the greater focus really of the passage last week was, hey, there's going to be this opposition from the world. There's going to be this pressure from the culture around you. And that's something that we see today and even something that we're seeing more and more of in our culture. And that is a danger to the church, the pressure from the culture, because unfortunately, we see way too often churches folding to that pressure, churches backing away from what God says and starting to adopt what the culture says. And that's a sad thing. Even as a pastor, that grieves me more than you see some crazy thing happening in the world. Obviously, that's sad. But when you hear, oh yeah, a church has started to buy into that same thought process, man, that's, that's sad. 
to see people backing down from the truth of God's word. And so that was more of the concern last week. But this week it points that there's another concern. Yes, there's pressure and there's danger from the outside, but there is also a danger that can come from within. And that danger really is when when the church can't agree. And it seems from some things we'll see even later in Philippians, that was one of Paul's concerns for the church. And there is so much potential for division in a church. One commentator on this passage summed it up by saying, Paul's concern here is not about doctrines, ideas, or practices that are clearly unbiblical. We're not talking about things that the Bible clearly speaks to, but it is about interpretations, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice. Such issues should never be allowed to foment controversy within the body of Christ. But if you've been a part of a church for any length of time, you know that all too often controversy and church go together. And we know, hey, there's core things the Bible teaches that we all have to be on the same page. The unity has to be based on that. You can see our doctrinal statement online on what we think those core doctrines are. But lots of times there's controversy about things that are way far down that list and arguments about interpretations of specific passages, or, or maybe it's taking, hey, God's word clearly says this, but how does that apply to this situation in my life or this situation in our culture? And people may have different opinions on that, or we could go all down the list of preferences, opinions, whether we should do this ministry or that ministry, uh, someday whether we should design a building this way or that way, and we could pass around the microphone and find that you've experienced church controversy of controversy of all shapes and sizes about things that maybe seem significant to things that surely were not. And here's the thing, what we saw last week as the pressure in our culture ramps up against God's people, uh, how is it going to work if as the pressure from the outside is ramping up, we are crumbling from within already uh, because of division and disunity? It's not going to work. That's how it's going to go. And we'll be doing the devil's work for him by already dividing the church as the the world is looking to push it over anyways. So how do we avoid that trap? How do we have a church that does have unity? Well, that's what our text today is going to show us. So let's read it. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you can see the flow of our passage is pretty simple. It's basically, if this, then that, Uh, right? He goes on a long list of, hey, if all this is true, then complete my joy by having all these things be true. So let's start by looking at the ifs. Well, what is all of this that he's going to get to in verses two through four based off of? You, You see The four things, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And the if there carries more of a a sense of since, I guess you could say, because he's not saying 
if these things are true, I don't know. He's saying, you know, if these things are true and I know that they are, then this is what you should do. And he's basically saying, hey guys, look at all the riches that are available to you in Christ. Encouragement from him, comfort from love, participation in the spirit. You've got all kinds of resources here. That's why Ephesians 1 was the perfect scripture reading to lead us into this message today. And if you're reading along with us in Ephesians, Ephesians 1 on Friday, Ephesians 2 yesterday, Ephesians 3 tomorrow, all of these chapters, you see this idea of riches that are ours in Christ, not talking about temporary earthly riches, but the spiritual riches that we have in Christ. Pastor Josiah read for you earlier Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 18. He's praying that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We have so much available to us in Christ, and that's where all of this unity is going to start. Point number one, act like you've got rich resources in Christ. Act like you've got rich resources in Christ. Now, what are those resources? Philippians 2, let's look at those four phrases that he goes to. The first one is, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And the Greek where there is paraklesis, which if you've been around the church for a while, maybe you have heard that word paraclete, sometimes referring to the Holy Spirit, but it's really referring to that term, the helper. So is there any help in Christ? And that word can have the idea of lifting another's spirits or, or being the wind in somebody's sails. I don't know. What do you guys think? Are there any things about Jesus Christ that should put some wind into your sails this week? Anything at all? Yeah, a whole lot, right? Uh, who Jesus is, the eternal son of God, what he has done. Uh, he has died on the cross for your sins. He has paid your debt in full, who he is now, the promises he has made that he will never leave you or forsake you, or as you seek to obey and fulfill the great commission, what keeps you going is that promise that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, and what he promises that he will be, that he is coming back, and he will make everything right, and we will enjoy those riches with him for eternity. So I don't know, did you find any reason to be encouraged in Christ and all that right there? I sure hope so. If we're singing, all I have is Christ, it's not like, oh, all I have is Christ. No, all I have is Christ, and that's more than enough. If there is any encouragement in Christ. And then the next phrase is, if there is any comfort from love. And it begs the question, whose love? And I mean, it could be talking about the love from other Christians. I think the better idea here really is the love of God. And even you see Christ in the phrase before, the spirit in the phrase after. It seems wise that, hey, this could be referring to the love of the Father. And we have Christ, we have the Father, we have the Spirit. And we see Paul talk about this comfort from the love of God back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul speaks of the comfort he's experienced. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Last week we talked about, hey, we need a different perspective on suffering. Paul wasn't afraid of suffering. He welcomed suffering as a friend. He welcomed suffering with open arms. You need to do the same. What enabled him to do that? Well, he knew, hey, when I experience the suffering of Christ, I experience the comfort of the love of the Father. And that is some sweet stuff right there. And that's why you shouldn't be afraid because no, hey, if I suffer for for Christ or in my suffering, I'm gonna experience the comfort of God. And that's a sweet thing. Those of you parents with with, with children, that's a special thing when you get to comfort one of your children. There's fun that you can have with your children and that's good, but there's a different kind of blessing that comes when, when they're hurt or they're suffering and you get to console them. There's a sweetness in that moment. And we get to experience that sweetness with our heavenly father and the comfort that comes from his love. Uh, think of someone else in scripture, the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, as he is seeing his whole country, the temple, Jerusalem, destroyed right in front of his eyes. And he's grieving, he's devastated by this. But he draws comfort from the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Do you believe that for your life this week? Do you believe that no matter what you go through this week, the steadfast love of the Lord will not stop? It will continue and there will be comfort to be had from that. The the next phrase there is any participation. It's the same word that's often translated fellowship in the spirit. And this is a good reminder that none of these rich resources that we're talking about are things you experience in isolation. They're things that all of God's people experience. The things that we all share as Christians, we share, we have fellowship, we share participation in the Spirit. And let's just think for a moment about how good that is. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it's better for you that I leave and give you this Holy Spirit than if I stick around, right? He's saying it's better for us to have had the Holy Spirit than if he would have stuck around for the last 2,000 years. And you have that. You have that inside of you. In Ephesians 1, it reminds us of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. And are you concerned about the world out there? Probably. Well, that's why God gave us the Holy Spirit because John 14, 15, 16, hey, the world is going to hate you. In the world, you will have trouble, but I'm giving you this helper. I'm giving you the spirit and he's going to help you remember the truth. He's going to even give you what to say in those moments when you need it. You have the Holy Spirit. And fourth there, if there's any affection and sympathy, and this is where I do think Paul is getting beyond just the resources we have directly from God and the resources that we have from his people, that you are adopted into God's family and you should experience as a Christian the affection and sympathy of the body of Christ. And that one may be harder because when we think about the encouragement in Christ, that's perfect. When we think about the comfort from God's love, that's perfect. When we think about the Holy Spirit, well, he is perfect. Well, maybe the affection and sympathy you've experienced from the body of Christ hasn't been perfect. It probably hasn't been perfect. And that's where I would encourage you, our, our sinful temptation sometimes is to focus on the ways we haven't seen it instead of to really cherish the ways that we have. And I would encourage you to, to cherish the ways you have seen affection and sympathy and care from the body of Christ. So, so let's review this. You have encouragement in Christ based on who he is, what he's done, what he is now, and, and what he will 
do. You have comfort from his love. No matter what you're going through, you can bank on the comfort of the love of God. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you to help you until Christ returns. And we have a body uh, that should be full of affection and sympathy. Take a moment to think about how rich you are in Christ. Think about the resources that you have and think, hey, when you've got unlimited resources, you should think differently. I mean, just just think about something practical. We just wrapped up summer. We're back in school year mode. But most of you, you probably took some kind of vacation or trip this summer. Where did you go? What did you do? And now think back, what would you have done if money was no object? Yeah, you might have gone somewhere different than you did. Or if you would have gone to the same place, you might have stayed somewhere nicer or or done some more extravagant things, experienced a little more fine dining than you did. What would you have done if money was no object? Because what we all do is we're planning that vacation. Well, we think about some necessary things. My resources are limited. So do we want to go here? Well, if we go there, we might not be able to go here too. Or if we stay here, we'll have to limit this, right? That's the way we, we have to think with limited resources. But what if they were unlimited? And again, I'm not trying to talk about how you can have better vacations. Let's think about loving other people because that's, we're gonna see, especially in verse two, that's part of this unity. It comes from love. Well, when it comes to loving other people, we think about it the same way as we think about our vacations. Well, I'm limited. And if I love this person, I don't know if I can love that person. And if I've loved this person this much, I don't know that I can love them anymore, right? We start thinking about our limited resources because let's be real, loving other people costs you something. And I'm not necessarily talking about money, but energy, emotions, investment, and yes, maybe sometimes some financial resources or your time or things like that. And that's where we start thinking so limited about those things. Well, what if resources were no object? What if you had unlimited resources? Because in Christ, you do, is the idea. You have all that you need in Christ. And yes, we are called to pour ourselves out, right? That's probably something you can relate with. That's what Paul says. We'll see it later in chapter two, verse 17. He talks about even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering for you guys. And sometimes many of you, you felt that. You felt like, man, I'm pouring myself out for this person or, or for this situation. How can you keep doing that? Well, are you a cup or are you a fountain? Are you a cup that, hey, I pour out, but then eh, I'm empty. And I need someone to pour into me before I can pour anything else out. Or is it, hey, I've got a water source inside of me. I'm a fountain, so I'm always pouring out. That's what I do. And remember what Jesus Christ said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, as he talked about this living water that only he can provide. John 4, 13, Jesus says to this woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but... Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you are, as he goes on to explain, a worshiper of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth, you've got a spring of water inside of you. You've got a never-ending flow of life coming from your Savior. That, that means, hey, we're free to pour out for other people. Knowing all that we have in Him frees us up, as we're going to see later, to not just think about ourselves, but to think about 
other people. So we need to act like we have unlimited resources in Christ. And that will help us then. That gets us to the command back in Philippians in verse 2. And in the Greek, there's multiple things, if you're looking at it in the English Standard Version, that look like imperative commands. In the Greek, there's really only one. And that's right there in that first phrase in verse 2, complete my joy. And then everything else is saying how that should be done. Having the same love, being in full accord, or sorry, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then I think this would be a little better translated, doing nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, each of you looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it all flows from the main command there is complete or fulfill my joy. It's interesting how that's how he words it, because joy is a theme you'll see throughout the book of Philippians. And one of the things it clearly shows is, hey, obedience, faithfulness, unity, it leads to joy. And Paul is is showing that in his life. Hey, uh, serving you guys brings me joy. Hey, would would you also bring me joy by, by doing this? That's what would really make me happy. Whether I get out of jail or not, and whether I come and see you or, or I just write to you, what I want to hear is this, that you guys are unified. And can I just say that as a pastor, I feel Paul there. You want, you want to know what would make me happy? Seeing this. Just a reminder, helpful every once in a while, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, give, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Make your pastors happy. It's right there in the Bible. Didn't you see that? <laughs> right? One of you say, well, what would make a pastor happy? Right? This. I was at a conference recently where we were doing a Q&A with pastors and somebody said, hey, well, what, what can the congregants do to serve pastors? And the first answer was, well, just do what God says. And all the other pastors were like, yeah, yeah, cosign, right? All in agreement, easy question. Just do what the Bible says. That's what would make pastors happy. And here specifically, it's, hey, what would make your leaders happy is seeing this, this same mind, this same love, no selfishness, no vainglory, humility, considering others. And so let's get into what is it that Paul is saying would complete his joy. Let's work our way through these phrases. And the first one there is by being of the same mind, or it could be, you know, thinking the same. When you translate English into Greek, uh, Greek has, or sorry, Greek into English. That's where we want to go. Um, Greek, the word order is not the same as it would be in English. So if you just translate it straight and read it that way, you start sounding like Yoda, because literally what he says is the same you may think right? Uh, That's what I want. Fulfill my joy the same you may think. Now, clearly, from even what we see in Philippians and what we know from experience, that that can't possibly mean that you all think the same way about everything. If that's the expectation, get ready for disunity because uh, we're different. But it's really that there's this same mindset, uh, that you're thinking the same way. And what is that way? Well, Paul has shown us his mind We see it most clearly in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's my mindset. I want you guys to all have that mindset. Or as he says in verse 
27 of chapter one, what, what is the one spirit and the one mind that he wants them to have? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Guys, have the same mind that you're all committed to Christ and you're all committed to the advance of the gospel. Come together on that. The same you may think about that because that's the most important thing to all of you. And then have the same love. Going back to chapter one, verse nine, I want your love to abound more and more. And that love is a commitment. I want you guys to be committed to each other. And Paul has shown that this is, this is what I do. This is what I want you to do as well. Point number two, share Paul's focus on Christ and his people. That's what he did. That's what he wants from them. That's what God wants from us. Like Paul, I'm committed to Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Like Paul, I'm committed to his people. Their joy brings me joy. Their progress in the faith, that's what I want, right? That's the commitment that we all need to share. And again, that reminds us that the unity is not just for unity's sake. The love and camaraderie that Paul felt with the Philippians flowed from the partnership they had in the gospel. We see that all throughout chapter 1, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's why I'm praying for you guys. That's why I rejoice for you guys. Verse 7, well, because you've been partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my ministry. You guys have been there alongside me, supporting me. And that's what he wants to see from them. Verse 25, he wants to be released from jail to go be with them for their progress and joy in the faith, not just to give high fives and catch up about old times. And then we saw it again in verse 27. What he wants from them is one mind striving side by side. You're a team with a goal. And the goal is the advance of the gospel. The goal is to know Christ and to serve him. And that's where, hey, what, what, what's your goal? Because when we talk about disunity in churches, one of the greatest causes of disunity has nothing to do with interpersonal stuff. It doesn't really have anything to do with the difference of opinion or how something is handled between you and, and somebody else. It starts in your heart with what is your goal? A lack of focus on Christ in somebody's heart is the beginning of all kinds of disunity in the church. And a big problem is when, when Christians become this idea of lukewarm, when they're not hot or cold, when they're not committed to and on fire for Christ, there are going to be problems. I've been reading a book lately about revivals kind of from 1750 to 1850 in America. So kind of the first century of our nation's existence. And it's interesting how, how, how much things have changed and also how many things have stayed the same. Because like me, I'm sure many of you, you're grateful for a lot of the Christian heritage of our country, but it's a good reminder looking back then, hey, they needed revival because there was a lot of Christianity that wasn't very Christian or focused on Christ. And one pastor who was preaching and, and saw revival in his church and in his uh, community, he said this, he said, how common, how fashionable is this lukewarm religion? This is the prevailing epidemical sin of our age and country. We have thousands of Christians, such as they are, but alas, they are generally of the Laodicean stamp, referring to that church in Revelation 3. They are neither hot nor cold. And what does it say in Revelation that God is going to do to that church? He's going to spit them out of his mouth. And he's saying, man, that's the big problem. And you're like, man, he, he was saying that 300 years ago? 
Sounds kind of like today. There's, maybe we can upgrade it from there are thousands of Christians such as they are to there are millions of Christians such as they are, but, it, but it's not the real stuff. It's this lukewarm Christianity. There's a lack of focus on Christ. And so he goes on to say, but it is our first concern to know how it is with ourselves. Therefore, let this inquiry go round this congregation. Are you not such lukewarm Christians? Is there any fire and life in your devotions or are not all your active powers engrossed by other pursuits? Hey, guess what? We can't fix all the problems in the church in the United States of America, but why don't we just start right here with this one? And why don't you start right there with yourself? And let's ask ourselves, hey, are we committed to Christ or not? Are we in or are we not? Are we on fire for him or are we lukewarm? Is really to live Christ or not? And what's the answer for you? And I mean, he goes on to give some diagnostic questions. He says, is there any fire in life in your devotions? Are you seeking Christ every day? Is that the most important thing for you? Man, I got to spend time with him. I need to read his word. I got to spend time in prayer because I, I need him. Not because I just have to, or it's an obligation, but I need it because I need him. And, and is your desire each day, man, I want to grow. I want to be more like Christ that's what I need. And that's more important to me than, than how much money I have or how my fantasy football team is doing or what's going on at work or what's going on in my family because all that is for nothing if I'm not becoming more like Christ. Is that your desire? And then like Paul, is your clear desire, are you seeking to share Christ? If you really think Jesus is all that, who are you telling about him? Are you trying to proclaim the good news? Because, hey, if you are not like Paul, man, I want to know Christ, I want to be like Christ, and I want to see Christ made known to others and see other people advance in Christ. If that isn't your chief desire, then you are disunity waiting to happen. That's the way it is. And that starts before we get into any of what we'll get to of, hey, how we should think about other people. It starts with what do you think about Christ and what he has called you to do? Then obviously it does get into what we think about other people. The next phrase there is that you would have the same love. And that word for love is the Greek word agape, which really has the idea of commitment. This isn't just an emotional, feely thing. No, I'm committed to these people no matter what. And even having there could be translated maintaining, that I'm maintaining this same love. And Paul's desire, even verse one, is not just maintain that it would grow more and more. And we already talked about how that's not what naturally happens. What naturally happens is the more you get to know someone, often the harder they are to love. Let's be real. That's one of the reasons having a strong godly marriage is hard because the more you get to know each other, the more you see their sin, the more they see your sin, the more hard that can get. And that's why the world most of the time is like, I'm out, I'm done, this is too hard. But God calls us to hate follow his plan, grow ourselves, seek our own sanctification and, and seek to model that. And that's when we'll see things work. Well, the same goes in church. The, the longer you sit next to some of these people, the longer you go to the same life group as some of these people, the more annoyed in your flesh you're going to get at them. That's just the way it is. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. He's saying, no, I want you to have the same love. Don't get any less in your love. Get more. And that's because it's not an emotional thing. It's a commitment. Are you committed or not? We need to be committed to each other. And when that happens, what we see at the end of verse 
Two is that we are being in full accord and of one mind. Again, there's that one mind idea there, but also there's that full accord, the idea of it's, it's harmonious, right? It's one of the beautiful things in music, this whole idea of, of harmony. You can have a choir filled with so many different voices, and some of them are singing the same note, but it's different voices, and some of them are singing different notes, but it all works together. I remember our the choir at my college, they would do this thing every once in a while if you were at one of their concerts where instead of all being up on the stage, they would intersperse throughout the whole room. And so you'd be surrounded by this sound and you'd hear voices over there, voices over here. And some of them are singing the same notes. Some of them are singing different parts, but it all comes together and you're just surrounded by this beautiful harmony. That's the way the church should be. Again, it we're different voices. We sound different. We're different personalities. Sometimes we're even singing different notes, but it all works together because we're all following the same conductor. We're all focused on him and we're coming together to make this beautiful sound. That's what the church should be. And we'll see that when, hey, we share, we're all committed to Christ. That's number one. We have that same mind and we're committed to each other for better or worse, no matter how annoying we are to each other. We're committed. But then we see again more of the problems in verses three and four. Because sometimes you're listening to that beautiful music and then you hear something, you know, wait, oh, that, that, that note's not right. Something gets introduced that doesn't quite fit there. And that's where, you know, sometimes we lose that focus. We get distracted and our pitch gets off. And that's not good. And, and sometimes it's even worse because sometimes what you will see is instead of someone just kind of losing focus or getting lost in the moment and, and singing the wrong note, it's somebody steps in front of the choir and I want to make this a solo all about me. And that's not going to work. And that's what we see we're warned against. Look again at verses three and four where it makes clear, hey, what's going to make me joyful? Well, when you're not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, you're counting others more significant than yourselves. And each of you is looking out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Both of those verses follow a clear, hey, not this, but this. Do that. Not that over here, but this. And we see a warning against a very active self-focus. This is the, hey, I want to steal the mic and sing the solo and overwhelm the choir. This selfish ambition or conceit. But I think also in here, there's a more maybe passive self-focus where it's not, hey, I'm scheming for my own glory and I want everyone to look at me, but it's just, I'm kind of lost in my own stuff and I'm dealing with my own things, right? And the solution to both of those is an active focus on others. That's what we see in both verses three and four. It's a very active, hey, I'm gonna actively think and treat other people differently. And that's the way it works because there is no such thing as a passive focus on others. That's, that's never what we just drift towards. That's not what comes natural to us. If we're passive, we're gonna be focused on ourselves. To be focused on others will require us being active and intentional. So point number three, let's put it down this way. Actively care for the concerns of others. Actively care for the concern of others. And let's walk through each of these things here. Verse three starts, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Yeah, this is the warning against that more active self-focus. And it starts with that term selfish ambition. 
which can sometimes be translated with words like strife or contentiousness and is found in some of the bad lists in the Bible. The list describing, hey, these are the kind of people that aren't going to heaven, selfish ambition, right? That that's a concern. Like I said, sometimes translated by different words. And, you know, I see this a lot because I have small children in my house. And you see that this doesn't have to be taught, right? It's, it's innate. One of the first words every child learns is mine. And one of their favorite phrases is, well, I had it first, as if that is the trump card that ends all arguments, right? No, it, it doesn't. And I see that. And that's why we have to work and discipline our children and train them. But it, the problem is that we still do it as adults. And we see Paul warning against it. Second Corinthians 12, 20, he's talking to that church and says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish because I'm not going to be, my joy is not going to be complete because perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I don't want to see that among you guys. Or James talks about this as well in James chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He's comparing godly wisdom with earthly wisdom. And he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Did you catch that? Selfishness is demonic. Lots of times when we think about demonic, we think about the, you know, the weird uh, stuff. And hey, sure, there's stuff like that in the Bible. There's stuff like that in our world. But it's also, hey, when you're selfish, that's demonic too. We don't need eyes rolling back into somebody's head for it to be demonic. When you are seeking your, your own glory and, and your selfish ambition and there's strife because of that, that's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, right? And that's where that selfish ambition can still be seen in adults. Again, that idea of strife or contentiousness. How many times in adults is it, well, I need to make sure I am proven right. And this conversation cannot be over until everyone admits that I am right and they are wrong, right? That's not good. That's selfish ambition. Or, hey, they've offended me and I'm angry and I will not forgive until I've got my pound of flesh in return. That's selfish ambition, strife contentiousness. And that's not what we're called to. The next word there, conceit. I actually, I really like the, the, the King James translation of it. It's vain glory, which that's a great way to render the Greek, or maybe another way would be empty glory. Stay away from selfish ambition, strife, contentiousness, and empty glory. All right? How often do we make things about us? And what we care about most is what will people think of me, Right? And it's a good reminder, all of that is empty. All of that glory is empty because someday we're going to die and stand before Christ and remember, it's not about me at all. It's about him. And so the solution that we see to that in Philippians 2 is instead of selfish ambition or conceit, in humility, count others more significant 
than yourselves. And that's perhaps the best snapshot, one phrase explanation of humility in the Bible. What is humility? Because I don't know if you know this, but when you read humility, you probably think, that's, that's a good thing. I, I want to be humble because you, you've, you've been taught enough of that, maybe at church throughout your life. In the Greek culture, that word was not a good thing. Humility was not a virtue for them because it's either, well, if you're humble and you kind of have this low view of yourself, that's a problem because either, well, then you're not that great and you should be great or you are great and you're just kind of being dishonest about it. That's, that's not what, what their culture valued. But here it's saying, no, humility is the way that you should think. And it also corrects, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions we have about humility, where we think humility is just having this really low view of myself. Yeah, I'm not that great. I'm messed up like everyone else is, and I'm probably worse than a lot of people. No, even some of that can be a false humility, which is actually pride. And a lot of people have said it well this way, that true humility isn't really thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. But when you're truly humble, it's not when, oh, I just have this low view of myself. It's when you're not thinking about yourself at all because you're focused on other people. And that's the kind of humility he's calling for here. Hey, humble yourself by making it about others. Because you know who was humble? This is what we'll get to next week, Jesus Christ. Well, was he thinking, well, guys, don't, I'm really not that great. No, he is that great. But he was humble. How? Because he treated other people. He wasn't focused on himself. He humbled himself to serve us. And that is the humility that God calls you to, this focus on others. And we get more of what that'll look like in verse four, because it warns us now against this passive self-focus, right? I mean, it's one thing to be scheming and manipulating to get your own way, but it's still also not good when you're not doing those things, but still you're, you're just kind of lost in your own world. Because guess what? Everybody here, we've all got responsibilities. Probably every person in this room right now, there, there's some things you've got to do this week. And if you don't do them, there's going to be big problems. You've got stuff you've got to do and you've got concerns. There's things in your life that are on your mind and your heart. And even though when we talk about suffering, we're not saying, well, hey, I'm in jail for the gospel. I bet every single person in this room has some level of suffering in their life right now. And it's easy to just get lost in that. I got this stuff I got to do. I'm concerned about this. Oh, this is really hard for me. And that's all we think about is our own concerns. And the Bible assumes that we're thinking about that, right? It assumes, hey, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We're assuming you're, you're loving yourself. Hey, husbands, uh, love your wives and treat them as you would treat your own flesh. Guys, you're going to take care of yourself. So take care of your wife. And hey, here, don't just look out for your own interests. I know you're going to do that, but look out for the interests of others. That's what it calls us to. And that's where you need to get outside of just your responsibilities, your concerns, your suffering to say, hey, what about the people around me? What are their responsibilities? What are their concerns? What are their sufferings? And is there anything I can do to encourage them and to look out for those things? And what we see is the godly way to think is, hey, I'm going to show up to church or life group or to serve or even just hanging out with my friends or, or to my workplace. And I'm going to walk in here saying, I'm the least important person here. 
hey, what does everybody else have going on? And, and how can I help in that? And what are some of the practical things that should lead us to? One thing that we've seen now a few times in Philippians, a good reminder, is that we should be praying for other people. As we see the concerns, as we see the responsibilities and care, we should pray and lift up those burdens for other people. And that's where, hey, maybe some of you aren't really even looking out to your interests because you're not praying for your own concerns. When even that's what God tells us to do. Hey, don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. Hey, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Hey, hey, pray for the things you care about and look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Pray about the things that are concerning to other people and ask and listen. Ask people, what are their responsibilities? What are their concerns? What are their sufferings? And this is not a call to be nosy because you can't do this with everybody. And it's not about just making sure you're in the know about everything. Uh, But as you are able to build relationships, and sometimes there's a trust that's required to even ask these questions, right? Those are the things that you're seeking. And even before you ask, sometimes you're just catching a lot of that just by listening. Because guess what? People will talk about what they care about. And so if you just shut up and listen, you're going to hear, hey, that person clearly cares about this. Hey, this person is, is really going through this. And you can start to pay attention and know these things because you're, you're more interested in what other people have to say than you are in what you have to say. And you're more interested in what other people are going through than just dumping what, what you are going through. And then as you pray and you listen, well, then seek to serve. And sometimes the simplest way you can do that is by prayer, but I'd encourage you, hey, make sure you follow up with people. How many times has somebody shared a prayer request in some setting, and oh yeah, I'll pray for that, and then crickets, there's nothing. And maybe some people did pray, but no one's ever gonna know that. I mean, let's be a place where, hey, I wanna follow up with that person, and even if I don't wanna be nosy, I wanna respect, I'm just gonna let them know, hey, I have been praying. You might not even need to ask, how is it going? It might depend on your relationship, but you can let them know, hey, I'm praying and I care about what you're going through. Sometimes that can lead to then, hey, there's practical opportunities to help. These people need to be served physically in some way, or maybe it's, hey, this person's really struggling and I can be a source of encouragement and accountability in an ongoing basis in their life. We need to be concerned with the interests of others. We want to be a culture where we actually do what Galatians 6 says and bear one another's burdens. Because if we're on a team, others' burdens are our burdens. We can't just say, well, that's their problem. No, we're on a team. So if anybody has a problem, we're sharing that problem because we've got a goal. And if anybody has a problem keeping them from that goal, we want to do what we can to help with that. And I hope you start to see, hey, this mindset actually treating people this way, and hey, their concerns, their responsibilities, their suffering is more important to me than my own. How are you going to be able to do that? Well, by trusting, hey, my responsibilities, my concerns, my suffering, God's got those. He's going to take care of those. And so that frees me up to not be so consumed with those things that I can't help anybody else because God's going to take care of me. And one kind of final thought I want you to see from this passage. There's questions, there's so many phrases in, this, in these four verses. If this and this and this and this, then complete my joy by that and that and that and that, right? 
And people say, well, why all these like quick phrases? Is each one trying to say something different? Are they all saying kind of the same thing? What's up? And I think the best answer is that all of the phrases are just a show of passion, right? Paul is saying, guys, I care about this. You have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort from love. You have participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. So then do this. And I want to remind you, remember, this is not the word of Paul, ultimately. This is the word of God. And in that is not just merely communicated Paul's passion or my passion. What's communicated is God's passion. God cares about this and God cares about that in this church. And we know another reason God cares, as I mentioned earlier, and this is what we're going to look at next week. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The perfect example of everything we've talked about today is Jesus Christ. God is not instructing us to do something that he has not already done. And how did he do it? Who Though Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.